Um, I, I, I'm lazy, so I, I try to take a, a week off whenever I can, and I'm kind of on a roll here. This is the second week in a roll, which is good for you guys, because that means once in a while you actually get to hear some good preaching. You know, that, that's a good thing. Uh, oh, you're too, knock it off. That's what I wanted you to say. Yeah, that's good. That's good moment. But uh, look at, uh, we had Dwayne last week. This week, I, I want to introduce you. Uh, some of you know him. Some of you probably won't. But a real good friend of mine. I've known him for a couple of years now. Uh, he... You know he's good because he comes from the same, got his doctorate from the same seminary I got the doctorate from, and that, that's Princeton. All right, hoo-hoo. But beyond that, way beyond that, believe me, way beyond that, uh, this man is a, a prophetic voice to the Church of the Twin Cities and really throughout the nation, and to some extent throughout the world. Uh, a prophetic voice calling the church to be the church, the community of the beloved uh, people, and, and, and especially holding up racial reconciliation as a front burner issue that the church has failed miserably on. He's the pastor of Christ for All Nations Church, which is a church that has about 25 different ethnic groups uh, coming together uh, to worship the Lord and to live out the kingdom. Uh, he says it straight. And if you've been hanging around here for any length of time and haven't left yet, that means you like it straight. All right, that's good. So are you ready to hear the straight word of God? If so, give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Dr. Jin Kim. Amen. Lord, just bless this man. Anoint him. Help him to say it straight. Amen. God bless you, my man. Be blessed. Thank you, Greg. Actually, I did my Master of Divinity at Princeton. And you I, have a doctorate? Yeah, well, Get did my... Here, <laughs> I did my doctorate ministry at Columbia Seminary, but anyway... Um, Thank you uh, for inviting me to this church. It's always a pleasure, and uh, uh, you should know what an important congregation this is, not only here in the Twin Cities, but throughout the world, for your faithful witness, um, for, as an evangelical community, to uh, separate our love of country from our love of the kingdom, as every people around the world needs to do. Uh, it's a very countercultural thing here. So I really uh, appreciate your witness uh, in that area. I, I feel so blessed in so many ways. Um, my, my family, my congregation, the larger church of which we are a part, this too, you know, we're, whether we're affiliated with the Baptists or we're Presbyterians or we're non-denominational, denominational, we're part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And to know that there are millions of Christians throughout the world worshiping right at this time uh, what a blessing that is. And that that community will one day be together in the kingdom of heaven. And it's preparing for that reality that we gather together on this morning. So I, I thank you for your witness and for your encouragement, for your prophetic call. I, I also, having been preached here a couple of times now just this weekend and at the conference before, I, there's such love here in this congregation. You know, you can feel it. And I preach at a lot of places, so I know it when I feel it. There's a lot of love in this community. And, I, and it helps me to understand how hard things can be preached here. If you're prophetic without love, then you're just an empty gong, a uh, uh, clanging cymbal, right? Uh, you, can, you can say hard things, but you're not going to move mountains. But if you have love... And, and concerned for the community but aren't prophetic, then you're just a people-pleasing congregation. And that's not doing anything either. And so only when we're pastoral, we have pastoral love, can prophetic ministry flourish. And the fact that prophetic ministry here has been flourishing for so many years is a proof that there's a lot of love that undergirds those hard words. So I praise God for you. I truly do. You are a very important part of the global body of Christ. Um, I, I, I do say things that are unconventional, but unconventional does not mean unorthodox. You should know that uh, as a Korean, I'm an evangelical, it's one and the same thing. <laughs> and I have a deep commitment to biblical orthodoxy. In fact, my children are named Claire Nicaea, which means clearly orthodox. You know, Nicaea, Nicene Creed. And my son is named Austin Athanasius. Austin is a diminutive for Augustine, two early uh, church fathers. Um, I actually want to name him Augustine Athanasius. And I emailed my brother one time and I said, What do you think? He goes, Why don't you just name him Kick Me? <laughs> so I said, Well, okay, maybe, maybe Austin is good enough. 
Uh, we know what that name really means. If, if we're blessed with a third child, and then the third child, you know, we have Claire Nicaea Kim, Austin Athanasius Kim. If we're blessed with a third child and he's a boy, we plan to name him Martin Luther Kim Jr. <laughs> All the great heroes of the faith. Amen. So please know that my commitment to historic orthodoxy, as, as I uh, preach this word, um, I'm a lectionary preacher, I'm a mainline Presbyterian, and those of you who come from a mainline background, you know that a lot of us follow the lectionary. This is the second Sunday of Advent, and the gospel reading on the second Sunday in the Revised Common Lectionary comes from Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through, well, I've extended it to verse 14, but let's read this together. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of uh, Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. In the wilderness, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Hallelujah. Amen. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I find it interesting that the Apostle John frames this passage by telling us the times that they live in. To say that this is the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius is to say that uh, this is the first year of the presidency of Barack Obama. It's a very particular time with a particular political framework. It is the time of the Roman emperor governing provinces, colonies, as we uh, might say, including Judea and Galilee, which were ruled separately, kind of the northern and southern kingdom being perpetuated even into the Roman Empire. And it's in this time of empire, it's in the time of the priesthood of Annas of Caiaphas, of the particular religious establishment of the day, that John the Baptist is proclaiming repentance in baptism. A baptism of repentance so that we might be prepared for the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in whom all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But the thing about John is that he is not just proclaiming a baptism unto salvation, which is the way we usually think about salvation. I mean, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church, of which I'm a part, or, or Baptists who believe that we have to come to an age of understanding and adopt the faith for ourselves of our own volition, salvation and, and baptism have been closely tied since the beginning uh, of the church. But what John the Baptist does is tie baptism to repentance. And it's for us, for a lot of us, repentance is just kind of the, the hoop you got to jump through. That I'm sorry for my sins, and now I receive Jesus Christ, and then we become saved. But for John, repentance is a permanent state. Repentance is a permanent posture. We say at Church of All Nations, yes, truth in advertising, we're Presbyterian. But we're a penitently Presbyterian 
congregation. We're a penitently Presbyterian congregation. You know why remain, we remain Presbyterian, even though it's one of the fastest declining denominations in the country? It's such an embarrassment in so many ways to be Presbyterian. I mean, we lost like 70,000 members last year. We were once 4.2 million members in the 1960s. We're like 2.1 million now. A, a denomination that has Calvinist roots that believes in the sovereignty of God. Think about that. The sovereignty of God and the priesthood of all believers. What kind of believers? All believers. And do you know that we're 93% white as a denomination? How does a denomination that proclaims the sovereignty of God over all people, all creation, and the priesthood of all believers have a 93% white membership? Maybe all is not all it's cracked up to be in our denomination. But you know, we're not going to be independent. And I don't have any problem, by the way, with independent churches. But we're not going to be independent because we're not going to let the Presbyterian Church off the hook. Okay? For 500 years, the Presbyterian tradition has continued to this day. In fact, last year, no, this past year, July 10th, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of John Calvin's birth. I even know his exact birthday. And that's how Presbyterian I am. <laughs> and... When we are penitently Presbyterian and when we repent before the whole world of the ways that we have preached sovereignty on the one hand, but then also have been very colonial and racist throughout most of our history on the other hand, we implicate this entire tradition with us. We're going to repent as a local congregation and we invite the entire global 80 million member Presbyterian communion throughout the world to repent with us for the ways that we have failed to live into becoming the kind of beloved community that, that Dr. King has called us to, that the early church was all about, no way are we going to let the Presbyterian Church USA off the hook that easily. That is one of the ways we understand the proclamation of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you know how We've argued about baptism. Uh, we've argued about the Lord's Supper. Would you believe that in the 1500s, John Calvin was on his way from France to Germany to meet with uh, Martin Luther to merge their reform movements. He got caught up in Geneva for a while, but, and they kept in correspondence. But the fundamental reason why they could not bring the Lutheran and the reform traditions together, reform Presbyterian, was because of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So Luther had his own difference with the Catholic Church about that, uh, consubstantiation versus the Roman Catholic Church's view of transubstantiation. But John Calvin had a covenant view of the sacrament. So it's, it's, a, it's a little more than the Baptists, but less than the Lutherans, and, and much less than the Catholics, basically. It's hard to explain now. And when we look at it, we think, oh my goodness, on such a technical, on such a fine point of theology, they're going to create two separate movements that have endured for the last 500 years. And every denomination since has been supremacist. Gracious to a degree, but nevertheless supremacist. You know what I mean? Like we Presbyterians might say of Lutherans, oh, you know, those Lutherans, they're Christians. They believe in Jesus and the Bible and all that, but, but they're not as orthodox as us. They don't understand the fullness of theology as we do because Luther was a bit uneven, you know. Calvin was a lawyer. He had his act together. But Luther's temperament is kind of like Greg Boyd's, eh, you know, <laughs> up and down and ADD and all that, you know. So we Presbyterians, you know, think we're better than Lutherans, although we're all going to heaven together. And the Lutherans, you know, have hegemony in Minnesota and they think they're better than everybody else because they're the largest group and all that. I mean... It's just ridiculous because whenever Jesus wasn't present, the disciples got stupid, <laughs> right? When Jesus was around, they were going out and evangelizing and they were, you know, feeding the poor and, and doing miracles and walking on water with Jesus. But whenever Jesus wasn't around, they're like, who among us is the greatest? You know, surely we Lutherans are the greatest. No, we Catholics, we've been around the longest. No, we Presbyterians, we got order. We have order. And so the denomination today is, is nothing but pre-crucifixion disciples who have not entered into the fullness 
of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection because if we did, we wouldn't be divided the way we are right now and offer a horrible witness to the world. What do we Christians have to say to Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims and Kurdish Muslims and Pakistani Muslims and, and uh, Indian Muslims killing each other when we have 38,000 denominations not in communion with one another today? What do we have to say to the world about what it means to embody the good news of Jesus Christ? One God, one Savior, one Lord, one baptism, one faith overall. How do we live into that? What do we have to say to Muslims and Buddhists and non-Christians when they look at our witness and they say, physician, heal thyself. Oh, you want to come and preach the gospel to us? You want to preach the good news to us? You want to tell us to get over our differences? What about your denominational differences? What about your racial differences? How in the same town, in the same block, do you have an all-black church, all-white church, all-Korean church, and then you come tell us how to worship God? What kind of worship uh, of God do you have if it's not a tribal worship? You know, all of us are just so Neanderthal, aren't we? Because when you're born, you look, you know... Uh, when we come from biological families, we look somewhat, have some characteristics, physical and emotional and psychological and cultural traits of our parents. And so, you know, being at mother's breast means safety and security, and there's a, there's a homogeneity there. We look like each other, and, and dad too, although us dads are kind of useless for the first year, but eventually, <laughs> kids like to play and stuff. Uh, I'm not complaining, but... But eventually, you know, they, children start equating homogeneity with safety and security. And then the parents perpetuate that by saying people who are like our race and our culture and our denomination and our ideology are the safe ones. And next thing you know, others become enemies. You know what the term, where the term barbarian comes from? The Greeks thought everybody around them were barbarians because their language is kind of like bar, 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 bar. That's where that term comes from. They were making fun of people outside, right? From whatever uh, culture or nation we sit in, everybody else looks like barbarians because human beings have a tendency to make their particular cultural background normative, normal for everybody else. And so everybody else is not normal compared to us. And that's how we have tribalism and divisions. I mean, what is the Lutheran church? The Lutheran church are a bunch of Germans who worship Jesus Christ and then Scandinavians, who had German envy, right? <laughs> and, and what are uh, uh, Presbyterians? Presbyterians are Scottish Presbyterians who came to the United States and said, even though the British have been uh, dominating us for centuries, we are somebody, and we're going to create our own church. I mean, to be Presbyterian is to enter into Scottish, is privileging Scottish history and Scottish culture. How about the Episcopalian church? Everywhere else in the world, Episcopalians are called what? Anglicans. What does it mean to be the Church of Jesus Christ, also known as Anglicans? Anglican comes from Angle, England. Is the Church of England. Would, do, you, do you think Anglicans are a bit embarrassed by being called Anglicans? Would you be embarrassed if you were called a Koreakin? You know, some king in Korea wanted to get divorced over and over again so he could have male heirs, and the church wouldn't allow that, so he creates his own church, the Church of Korea. And then because of, of European colonialism and imperial domination all over the world, slavery, rape, genocide, all over the world, somehow the Church of Korea is also established along with this imperialism all over the world. And when these slaves, when these black people, Asian people and, and Hispanic people, whatever, become Christians, they also enter into the Christianity of that nation. And so therefore, they're part of the Korean communion. I mean, it's absurd. It is absurd what we have done with the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And that there are millions of people who call themselves Anglicans without a bit of ironic shame. That there are millions of people who call themselves Presbyterians and Lutherans without a sense of how shameful that is before the world is the problem. And so, like I said, we don't know what to do, really. 
You know, I mean, we're not going to leave the Presbyterian Church lest we leave them off the hook. But to stay is to just be part of a historic embarrassment. Now, all I can do is be baptized into repentance. And by having a penitent posture before God, maybe God will have mercy on us. Maybe God will have mercy on us. And that at this time every year, this, this season of Advent, is a reminder that Jesus has not given up on us. That thank God, Jesus is not ashamed of us. Jesus will have us in all our brokenness. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is still Lord of this messed up church. Right? <laughs> Hallelujah. And so, John says, yeah, we're going to have to get baptized. But it must be a baptism of repentance. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm a Presbyterian, which means I'm a sprinkler. <laughs> oh, you mock me. Yeah. I come penitently and you mock me. But, uh, it's, you know, it's more convenient. I... I <laughs> Especially in Minnesota, it's so cold. I mean, nobody wants to strip naked and go in water, even indoors. I mean, you know, we live in Minnesota. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be Minnesotan, by the way. I, I just make fun of it, but it's a, it's, a, it's a lover's quarrel I have with Minnesota culture. I'm a Minnesotan. I have lived in Minnesota longer than I've lived anywhere else in the world. Anywhere else. I'm truly Minnesotan. Oofta. And, and I really believe... That we Minnesotans are just as they describe in Lake Wobegon. The women are strong, the men are good looking, the children are above average. Let me tell you, my wife is strong, I'm good looking, <laughs> and my children are above average too. So we do fit into Minnesota culture. But this, but this baptizing in water, that's, you know, that's... That's taking on suffering because this is a cold place. We, we have since a few years ago decided that we're going to do immersion baptism too because that's in the Bible, you know? Even though the Presbyterian Church hasn't really practiced it, it's in the Bible. And one of the good things about Presbyterian Church is it's a mainline liberal church, so as long as you don't renounce Christ or anything, it's just kind of anything goes, which I appreciate. That's why I'm, I'm here. That's why I'm still Presbyterian. And so we decided to... Uh, do immersion once a year. So anybody that wants to do immersion baptism has to wait until July when it's warm. But we go to a nearby lake. And I, I, told, I told these guys this last July, I said, I'm going to immerse you, but I'm going to hold you down just for a little bit so I can say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And get that all in. But they were so scared. I said, I baptize in the name of the Father. It comes right back up. And the Son. Oh, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> And people ask me, why did you do it that way? I said, because they wouldn't trust me. I, try, I mean, I didn't want to do it three times, but that's what it came to be. I said, just give me about seven, ten seconds. I promise I'll bring you back up. But one of the reasons why I want to do it a little longer is because baptism represents death. Baptism represents drowning. You know? Because when you, you're supposed to die to your old self and have new life. And you need to stay down there a little bit and feel like, is this pastor really going to keep me down here? <laughs> and then when you come up, you have new life. You're really thankful to God, right? <laughs> Thank you, God. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And they might not ever trust me again as a pastor, but that's a small price to pay for experiencing <laughs> baptism authentically, amen? But this baptism unto repentance, unto death, is a serious thing. And the, and the people are just scratching their heads like, John, what are you talking about? How do we get baptized into this kind of repentance unto death? And uh, John's approach is, is quite strange. I mean, he, he was definitely a prophet that needed some courses in pastor care and counseling. Because when people come to me and say, Pastor, I'd like to get baptized, or I'd like my children to get baptized, or my children get dedicated, we do dedication in our church too, because that's the practice of the global church, uh, besides baptism. Um, I say, of course. And then we sit down together, and we talk about our values, and how we came to be, and um, we get to know each other. And then it was a wonderful celebration. 
to, to baptize. But this is the way John talks to people that came to, out to him to be baptized. This is uh, verse 7. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? This is what I mean by he has clearly not gone to seminary um, and not learned bedside manners and, and all that. This, you're not going to be a big church this way. And he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And then, you know, Jesus repeats this theme again and again in his ministry. By their fruits ye shall know them. The same John who is preparing the way for Jesus, who eventually baptizes Jesus and says, you are the one that, 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 that we've been waiting for and who's uh, the... the, the thongs I'm unworthy to untie. And a little bit later, he has second thoughts, right? He starts doubting Jesus, and he sends his disciples and says, are you really the one, or should we wait for another? Same John, John the Baptist. And what was Jesus' response to John the Baptist? A whole litany of I believes. Did, did John send a doctrinal, I mean, did Jesus send a doctrinal set, statement to John? You know, I believe in my virgin birth. I believe in my literal death and resurrection. I believe in the scriptures as the infallible word of God for faith and practice. I mean, Jesus said, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the widows and orphans are being taken care of, the sick are being healed. Go tell John that the fruits of the Spirit are being born, right? I, what has happened to Christianity in America that the test of orthodoxy and the test of whether we have an evangelical faith or not now is a litany of our doctrinal statements. Like Jesus cares. Like Jesus is impressed. You know, I went to seminary to learn all that stuff. And we pastors are the primary stumbling block to genuine faith among our people. Because we ourselves don't have Christian character. You know, just... Somebody help me understand how we created the seminary system that we've created. Because it seems to me it was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes that went to the seminaries of their day, who were formally educated, right? Who had all their degrees. But Jesus picked nobodies. He picked losers. Even by those days' standards, he picked losers. Just fishermen and farmers and tax collectors that everybody hated. And no formal education, no wonder it took so long for the Bible to actually be recorded in written form. I'm not sure any of these people knew how to read or write. Jesus himself was a carpenter for years and years, and he himself was not part of the uh, Pharisaic guild or the, or the scribes' denomination. He was not part of the mainline or magisterial reformation. He was a nobody. And does anything good come out of Nazareth? From a no-podunk town. This is the kind of people that Jesus used to inaugurate the kingdom. And what do we do? We pick our best and brightest from among us. Basically, the theologically clever, those who go to Sunday school and those who like to hang around the church parking lot because they don't want to go home, because they find a comfort you know, around the church, and that's me. And, and when I was young, because I was the pastor's pet, they said, wow, you're really loyal to the church. You should think about seminary. I mean, all the wrong characteristics to eventually become a pastor. That was me. I was smart. I, was, I had musical gifts. You know, I like to preach. I like to tell people what to do. Um, and I like to be at church all the time and be around church people. It's kind of a protection from the world. And those are the people that we're going to go to seminary. And what do we learn at seminary? There's a whole bunch of academic stuff. And nowhere in our call process are we tested for our character. Well, after you learn Hebrew and after you learn Greek and after you learn systematic theology and church history, do you really believe in Jesus Christ? And by the way, is Christ so real and evident in your life that it has a dramatic effect on your marriage? Does your wife trust you? Does your husband believe that you are a genuine disciple at home, not just on the pulpit? Do your children grow up to love God through your witness or hate God as a pastor's kid? Right? I mean, even the Bible says that not all should become leaders in the church. 
Uh, how can you lead the household of God if you cannot even lead your own, own uh, family household? And yet we know the whole, you know, PK thing, pastor's kids. I mean, there's something really wrong about the way we're doing pastoral training and pastoral leadership. If we get really smart people who have the character of non-Christians, I was going to say something else, but of non-Christians, right? What's the difference? Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. What if we demanded that every pastor in America pass the fruits test? All right? Not ordination exams, not seminary degrees, but the fruit of your life, the fruit of your character, the fruit of your family, the fruit of your relationships, the fruit of your witness as a Christian. We'd have far fewer pastors and a much more robust church is what we would have. But that word is especially potent for us as pastors, but that doesn't leave anybody else off the hook either. All of us are called to enter into the priesthood of all believers. That's part of the reason why we enter into a Reformation 500 years ago. Every one of us is a priest. Every one of us is an evangelist and a pastor and a teacher. And we also will be judged not by a litany of our doctrinal commitments, but by the fruit that we bear. You want to tell me that you're a Christian? Let me see your marriage first. Right? That's basically the litmus test at our church. If, we, if we're having problems with our marriage, then that's what our pastors and elders and leaders are for. Let's not try to solve that by ourselves. Go to your leaders and say, you know, this society, my parents, I've learned my whole life how to study, how to get good grades, how to finish school, how to get good job, how to do professional training, how to wear a suit and tie or a dress or whatever and make myself look good and get promotions and money and buy a house and a mortgage and cars and a dog and children and all that. But no one has ever taught me how to love my neighbor so profoundly that the religion itself is Christ-centered that Jesus is relating through me to my wife, to my husband, to my children, to, to my loved ones. I've learned how to read the Bible. I've learned to do exegesis. I've learned to go to you know, small groups and churches all my life, but I don't know how to love my wife. I don't know how to love my children. I don't know how to love those around me. Well, that's what your pastors are for. Except they themselves need to know how to do that, right? And so why do so many pastors hire pastors who have a reputation for good preaching without a thorough examination of their inner life because preaching is not going to have any effect unless that word seeps into the core of our being and we know how to be Jesus to one another right and so we also are part of a very imperial country that has taught the people all the ways of staying on top in empire, making money, securing our own retirement, getting an education and good jobs and all that. But we are some of the greatest failures in the world in terms of how to do relationships. We have one of the highest divorce rates in the world. And by the way, are Christians any better in the divorce rate area? We're the same. I mean. If by their fruits you shall know them, and we divorce at the same rate as non-Christians, what's the point of being a Christian, right? Shouldn't our fruit be qualitatively different? And please hear me. I have divorced people in my church. I am not judging divorced people. I, I think we really are all suffering from a country that is hell-bent on individual success, individual freedom, individual autonomy and so none of us know how to do relationship we don't know how to be interdependent i'm not talking about dependent or independent i'm talking about a mutuality an interdependent mutuality that is about bringing people together across racial gender generational lines i i'm not in favor of gay marriage i'm not in favor of homosexual ordination that's one of the reasons why you know i'm still called an evangelical in my liberal mainline denomination. However, I don't feel like I have that much to say about that. Because Jesus said, physician, heal thyself. Jesus said, take the plank out of your own eye before 
you point at the speck in the others. And here's what Jesus said about children. If anybody causes this little ones to stumble, it is better for them to take a millstone and tie it around their neck and throw yourself into the sea than to cause these little ones to stumble. Now I ask you, are our homosexuals in this country causing our little ones to stumble? Most of them don't even have children. It's heterosexuals like us who don't know how to be disciples of Jesus Christ, who bring all these worldly values and competitiveness into our homes that mess up our children so they learn to hate us and hate God at the same time. And because we don't know how to love each other, we divorce and make our children twice the children of hell than we are, right? That's what we're doing. I mean, we heterosexual Christians are going to dare talk about homosexuals when God's primary concern is for the little children of the world and we are the ones that are messing up the little children? Physician, heal thyself. Take the plank out of your own eye before talking about gay people. If we're going to save the world, we have to save our children first. And if we don't know how to do religion, and that's what I'm saying, is that I'm not blaming people for being, having troubled marriages. I'm not blaming people that it gets so bad that they have to divorce. I'm saying, go to your pastors. Get help, right? If you don't get help, then it's you. Find a church, and I'm sure this is one of those churches where if you're having marital problems, you can go to your pastor, to your leader, to your elder, to your small group leader before it's too late. But we've got to be vulnerable with each other enough. We've got to be the kind of church where we have to say, my marriage is on the rocks, and I need the church's help. And the way that a church relates to one another is, becomes the model for a healthy marriage. Now, at the same time that I, that I say that, the only way we're going to have a healthy marriage is if we hate wife and husband. Huh? <laughs> because Jesus said, if you do not hate father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, children for my sake, you cannot be my disciple. I think one of the reasons why marriages fail so massively in America is because we have not hated our wife, our husband, our mother, our father first. See, we try to have everything. We try to have everything. We want to be baptized, but we don't want to die. We want the resurrection, but we don't want the crucifixion. We want the glory, but not the suffering. And there is no way to the kingdom of God except not through life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is the lie that this country tells us all the time. It's through suffering, self-denial, and death that we eventually have new life. Yes, God loves us. God wants to have us to have good things. Death first to the present reality, then new life. And we Americans are so afraid of any kind of suffering. And so we want everything. We want mommy and daddy and God. We want wife and husband and God. It doesn't work that way. We have to leave everything, our social security, our, our economic safety net, our jobs, our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, leave everything hate any human claim, any authority in our life. And once we break free from obligations, the human web that we're a part of, and say we are only accountable to Jesus Christ, then, you see, only when we hate father and mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, children, meaning we reject their claim over us, their sense of obligation that they place in our lives. And only when we say, what? My mom and my brother and sisters want to visit me? They think that they have a backstage pass to me. They have special access to me because of biology. Who is my mother, brothers and sisters? Only those who do the will of God are my mother, brothers and sisters. I mean, what a callous guy this Jesus was. Wouldn't even see his own mother. And then, you know, when he was 12 years old, this goes way back, when he was 12 years old, his family goes back to Galilee and he stays in the temple. And his parents find him after three days, oh, where have you been? And he says, I've been right here in my father's house, dad. Jesus, even at the age of 12, makes it clear who his father is. And it says Jesus was obedient after that. But he was obedient to Joseph only insofar as Joseph clearly knew who Jesus' true father was. I'm not a father to my children. I'm a glorified babysitter. I am God's first appointed babysitter to my children. But my job is to return these children of God back to God. And I cannot get in the way. In that sense, I am training my children, both my wife and I are training our children to hate us 
in the biblical way that Jesus meant, to reject our authority, our claim over them, so that they can be truly the children of God. And by the way, here's the promise. If we do that, then God will restore us, now on God's terms, not ours. And so that when Mary, and Mary was a Jewish mother. Anybody know anything about Jewish mothers? They're like Korean mothers, okay? They just cling. And Mary, as a Jewish mother, if it was any normal Jewish mother, Mary would have said, crucify me, but leave my son alone. Amen? But do you know that Mary trusted God? And as excruciating as it was for her to witness the beating, the persecution, the humiliation, the suffering of her son under crucifixion, she let it go. She trusted God. And when Jesus saw that his mother now relinquished her claim on her son as a son, now Jesus can adopt her again. And so he says, Mother, here is your son. And to John, son, here is your mother. And he brings them together. You see, God brings us together. Because I hate my wife in the biblical sense, God brings us together, but with Jesus Christ as our Lord. Because I've hated my parents since college years. <laughs> my parents have lived in my own house for the last eight, nine years. You know, we live in the same house. Because I hate my children. Yes, wow. My, did, did I mention that my parents are Korean? Wow, indeed. <laughs> and because I hate my children, I have hope that they will be disciples of Jesus Christ one day. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. If we're going to be biblical Christians, we have to take the Bible seriously. And this whole section here, when John gives advice to the crowds, and by the way, you notice that he doesn't have any problem giving advice to non-Christians, what we would call non-Christians. He's talking to tax collectors and to soldiers worldly people. He has no problem telling people what to do out of his commitment to the kingdom of God and his understanding of the salvation in Jesus Christ. But all of the fruits of repentance, the fruits of baptism that he's talking about here has to do with money. Isn't that interesting? Look at it. Take, take, if you have two coats, give, give a coat to somebody else. You got food, give it to somebody else. Don't extort and don't collect more than is prescribed to you. All of the uh, aspects of discipleship that John the Baptist describes have to do with money. Speaking of money, can I talk about money here? Thank you. I got permission from the senior pastor. So, uh, how many of you know the, the percentage of giving of a mainline Christian in America to the work of the Lord, whether it's their local church or somewhere else? 2.3%. 3%? Oh, you guys are so gracious. 2.3%, we're talking about Presbyterians, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, 2.3%. Well, thank God for us evangelicals, huh? We give better than that. What do you think we evangelicals give? 2.7%. Yes! We won! 2.7%. And, you know, uh, evangelicals, us evangelicals, we're so fired up about being against homosexuality because the Bible is not in favor of it and against abortion because the Bible talks about the sanctity of life and from conception and all that. But the Bible speaks consistently about giving unto God what is God's and it talks about a tithe both in the Old and New Testament. I don't want to be legalistic about it because I believe that God is one who makes exceptions. You know, you don't believe me? When Jesus was picking grain on the Sabbath, he says, hey, God made an exception for David when his people did that, Right? So I believe that God makes exceptions. But if you want an exception from tithing, talk to your pastor first. Don't do it alone, right? Let other people bless you if you need an exception. But otherwise, all of us should be tithing because the Bible says so. So how is it that when it comes to something cheap, like being against something that people over there do, we can be so Bible-believing? But when it comes to something hard, like giving up 10%, and that's not even hard, really, but a lot of us think it's hard because we're so consumed by having security and money. When it comes to something hard like giving 10% of our own income, we somehow fudge our way out of it. Somehow, we think we can be Bible-believing evangelical Christians and not tithe. Only in America, right? Only in America. 
The stingiest Christians in the world are in this country. And we're also the wealthiest Christians in the world right now and the wealthiest Christians the world has ever known. And a lot of economists have said that if Christians tithed, if every Christian who claimed him or herself to be a Christian in America tithed, we would wipe out global hunger. In one shot. And so I say to my people, I don't even want to hear you talk about homosexuality or abortion unless you're tithing. Because if you're not going to put your money where your mouth is in this materialistic culture, you don't know anything about discipleship. And I say, oh, just in case you think I want money for our church, okay, let me say this. If you don't have confidence in our leadership, our vision, our programs, our ministries to tithe here, go find some other church that you do have confidence in and tithe there. Be faithful somewhere else because you're ultimately accountable to God. But don't come here and be less than faithful here. Don't come here and make excuses for yourself. Let's be Bible-believing Christians. Right now, only about 70% of our congregation is tithing. And I'm really working, and I don't know who they are. I don't, I don't find out. But I hear from the treasurer based on uh, the, the pledge forms we get that only 70% are tithing. Now that's an extraordinary high rate by most churches, but I'm concerned about the 30%, right? Because trusting God is what a baptism of repentance is all about. And I'm sure that that word will be welcome here. You know, I want you to know what a gift you are. You need to understand how unique this church is. Five years ago, there were 5,000 members here. Today, there are 2,500 people. I mean, this church is one of the churches closest to the New Testament that I know of. When Jesus was doing his ministry, he had 5,000 followers. When there was free food, there were 5,000 followers. Mostly college students, I'm guessing, because there was free food. <laughs> and there's 5,000 all of a sudden, just like that. You know, but then, so he's giving out free food, they're happy with that, but then he starts saying weird things like, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom. I'm like, whoa, you're getting all weird on us now. <laughs> and then even his own disciples, and, and, and for me to enter into glory, I'm going to have to suffer and die to the point of death on a cross. And Peter rebukes him, he's like, what are you talking about? You're, gonna, you're a king, you have to reign over things. And Jesus says, depart from me. And he says, get behind me, Satan, right? Always trying to avoid suffering somehow. This is the cost of discipleship that we're going to have to enter into. Jesus preached hard things, and he was rejecting so many disciples. Well, I want to follow you. Well, Jesus, you have to be homeless. Even birds have homes, uh, foxes have homes, but the Son of Man is homeless. If you want to follow him, you have to be homeless. You cannot have any claim to family, culture, ethnicity, nationality. Well, let me follow you, but I need to do some family obligations like bury my dad. You know, I'm a firstborn son. That's a Jewish law. Oh, if family obligation, Jewish law is more important to you, then you do that. Well, you, you got to at least let me say goodbye to my parents, right? And there's nothing wrong with saying goodbye, right? Except that the person who wants to say goodbye also is really saying, I want to pat on my head from my parents, and in case this discipleship thing with Jesus doesn't work out, I can at least go home for Christmas. I got some fallback, right? Parents are always the last security, isn't it? If everything else doesn't work out. And that's why Jesus said, oh, if you need to go say goodbye to your parents and get their blessing first, get their endorsement before you follow me. Anyone who puts their hand on the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus made the cost of discipleship so costly and more and more costly as people kept following him that by the time Jesus was on the cross, there was just a few women and maybe John, right? That's all there was. Jesus was the worst evangelist in the history of the church. I mean, Jesus should have gone to the, you know, Billy Graham's discipleship-making school or something, you know, how to do mass rallies and, and win converts because Jesus was an awful evangelist. He only got people to follow him when we, he gave them free food, basically. But when Jesus was preaching hard stuff, he kept losing members. And this congregation has not been afraid to preach the gospel and lose members in the process. 
When you do evangelism, imperial style, it means numbers, it means money, it means structures. But when you do evangelism, Jesus style, it means death to the point of crucifixion on the cross. And this congregation, you have not been afraid of entering into that kind of suffering unto death. And because of that, there will always be new life here. You need to stay courageous, stay on point, stay on message, be baptized into repentance. Because there's so many churches that are no longer church because they've sought after the logic of empire, of unlimited growth and success and all that. You have to be willing to reduce even more if that's what faithfulness requires because that is the way of Jesus. The numerical size and budgets and staff and all that, that's up to God. Faithfulness is up to us, right? Faithfulness is up to us. And so from one Christian to another, I encourage you to be faithful, to be courageous, to walk the path that you've already been on and not to be afraid to speak the truth. And I trust the truth spoken here because there's love that undergirds it first. The pastoral must always precede the prophetic. But as long as there is love in the congregation, there will be true prophecy. May God bless you, my fellow sisters and brothers in Christ. Amen. So what I think he was trying to say was, uh, could you be a little clearer here? It's all about faithfulness. That's all that matters. And to be faithful to the Lordship of Christ means you say goodbye to every other claim in our life. That's an ongoing process. Repentance is, as Jin said, a lifestyle. That's why uh, truth spoken, it has to kill us. If it's not killing us, it's not the truth. I got to be careful because I'm going to start preaching here. I, and I, I, we're already over time. But, but uh, it, it, when you hear the truth spoken, it should confront. It might make you mad. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, but it should always call us to repent. The one thing it should never do is leave us thinking, oh, that was sweet. Oh, that was quaint. That was nice. What a nice thought. Oh, so warm and fuzzy. No, it's confrontational, and therefore it's transforming, and therefore it's freeing, and that's what the kingdom is all about. Amen. I'd like to call the prayer teams up here. If you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to pray about or talk about, uh, these folks would be glad to pray with you uh, on those issues. Or if you just want to come up at the altar and pray, you're free to do that as well. I want to close with this prayer. Father, keep us to be a people who desire one thing, and that is the kingdom. To seek first the kingdom, who desire to be faithful, Lord God. Free us, God, from every comfort zone that we might be addicted to, whether it's our family, our ethnicity, our nation, our socioeconomic status, our prestige in front of others, God. Free us from every idol that may be there, that keep us from being the fully devoted follower uh, that you've called us to be, Lord. Manifest your kingdom in us and through us to reach all people. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.